Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 275. And tonight, we finally get the wolves on the hilltop in Eregion. Um, still not terribly far from the knees of Carathras, but um, uh, less, um, and, but still round about 20 miles or so from the gates of Moria, apparently. Um, but... We're um, uh, we're we're getting ready to go. I'm excited to be back. I was away last week. Uh, last week was a uh, was a fun week actually at Signum. We did lots of uh, lots of fun things, um, including uh, hosting our big evaluation site visit. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, went very well. Don't uh, we're going to be getting results very very soon. Um, well, very, very soon higher education terms, which means the end of February. But um, anyway, it's um, it's you know we're we're on the fast track for a uh, uh, you know, quick turnaround there. Um, anyhow, it's uh, I'm uh, uh, delighted to be back with you guys this week. Full week of broadcasts this week. So one thing I wanted to make sure to announce this week: um, there are three things that are happening this very week as is. Number one, we are starting our next book in the Mythgard Academy series, and that is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. I've been looking forward to discussing this book for years. This book has been nominated a bunch of times, um, has been a finalist several times, uh, and has now finally won the election. So we are going to be discussing Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis starting tomorrow night. Um, on the same channel and everything, uh, same time, but tomorrow night. Um, I'm, um, I'm really excited. Uh, uh, this Till We Have Faces is, in my opinion, without question and without even very serious challenge, um, the greatest work of fiction that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Paralandra is really good, too. That's number two, in my opinion. But, um, but Till We Have Faces is ahead of it by a country mile. Grew up a huge Narnia fan, love C.S. Lewis, but Till We Have Faces is above and beyond. Um, it is uh, very, very remarkable. So we're going to be starting that discussion tomorrow evening. That's the first thing that's happening this week. The second thing that is happening this week is the beginning of season seven of the Silmarillion Film Project on Thursday night. So the day after tomorrow, we'll be back at the same time, same channel for um, the beginning of our next season. So we just finished season six, which was the Baron and Luthien season. So we got through the whole Baron and Luthien story, and now it is time for the m most cheerful and uplifting season yet. By the way, we'll be saying that for the next few seasons in a row, which is the season which is going to culminate in the near night Arnoidiad. So um, that's uh, that's going to be that's going to be great fun. So uh, this first session uh, that'll be on Thursday night, uh, we'll be we'll be planning and talking about how we're going to approach, you know, the things we're going to cover and some of the challenges that we're going to be confronting uh, in uh, in figuring out how to how to how to how to begin on season seven. It'll be our first discussion there. Um, and Nancy's still mourning for Thorin Gwethel. I know she was a great character, right? It was um, it was really fun to it was one of the you know I saw my short list of things that have been really fun about the film film project. Um, uh, getting to develop the character of Thurin Gwethel before having her killed. Um, and uh, also, you know, 
giving a story and a reason behind why Galadriel marries Celeborn was another one. Anyway, um, so uh, so uh, Silm Film Project uh, beginning up again, season seven, starting on Thursday night. The third thing that is uh, happening. And yes, you're right, um, April and, uh, uh, and Silk, Silk Frock Coat. It's, um, it's true that in the Silmarillion, you blink and you miss her, right? Um, I mean, we're literally introduced to the character of Thorin Gwethel posthumously, right? She's already dead <laughs> when, we, when we meet her. Um, it's like, uh, and now, you know, and now introducing for her first major role, you know, playing Thorin Gwethel's corpse, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's sad. Um, so yes, in the uh, uh, Silmarillion film project, theoretical adaptation um we uh, uh we made Thorin Gwethel longtime associate of Sauron we you know she was his um his uh his his number one right hand person for uh for a long time you know right hand villain for a long time um we had her going for golly what four five seasons I think we introduced her in season two but um yeah yeah really cool anyhow Season seven is going to be good fun. So looking forward to the... It's hard to actually utter the sentence, looking forward to the Near Nyth or Noediad, but I certainly am um, looking forward to our discussions uh, and the wonderful work that our fun film film community uh, is going to be putting into season seven. The third thing that is going to be happening this week is... Cascade Moot. This very week, as is the fall regional moot season at Signum begins, um, I'm going to be getting on a plane for my first trip out to a regional moot this year, and we will be going for the first time to the Pacific Northwest at last. I've been talking about wishing for a, a, a Pacific Northwest moot for years, and it's finally happening this week. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out in Portland. Uh, on a Saturday for Cascade Moot. So looking forward uh, to getting to connect with folks there. So um, I'm excited about that. You can still come if you uh, happen to be in the Pacific Northwest and would like to join us. It's not too late. Um, go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org and you can sign up or uh, you can still attend remotely as well. All of our regional events are fully hybrid, um, not only able to be viewed remotely, um, but being you know able to participate uh, remotely, we try to involve our remote folks uh, as much as we possibly can uh, in our uh, moot activities. So um, that's uh, uh, that's going to be great fun. And of course, all of our uh, moot activities are also recorded and the archive made available both for people who attend in, uh, on site and for people who attend remotely. So. Um, that is um, uh, that is where we go. And yes, we have Other Minds and Hands this week, too. Again, after a, a bit of a hiatus, sort of an unplanned hiatus, as uh, either Maggie or I could not do it for three, like four weeks in a row or something. Um, yes, so we're doing Other Minds and Hands again this week as well. Um, uh, so, um, so yes, all kinds of... Um, uh, things going on, full broadcasts this week, uh, hopefully, um, and um, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we're, um, um, uh, yeah, so those are the things that are happening this week. All right, and of course, 
it's Bilbo's birthday too on the day that I'm flying out to uh, uh, to Portland. So um, I will be enjoying. Um, I will be enjoying um, uh, the um, the flight on Bilbo's birthday. Um, <laughs> yeah, Amaria, I hear that people talking about all the rain in the Northwest and people in Texas wondering what they're talking about. Yeah, that's what I. That's what I. That's what I hear. I got to tell you, given the summer we've had up here in New England, I'm going to the Pacific Northwest for some dry weather. Um, you know, I hear that. Uh, I hear that it doesn't rain actually every day out there, uh, unlike New England. So, um, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's um, let's head back into the text here. All right. For their defense in the night, the company climbed the top of the small hill under which they had been sheltering. It was crowned with a knot of old and twisted trees, about which lay a broken circle of boulder stones. In the midst of this they lit a fire, for there was no hope that darkness and silence would keep their trail from discovery by the hunting packs. Round the fire they sat, and those that were not on guard dozed uneasily. Poor Bill the pony trembled and sweated where he stood. The howling of the wolves was now all round them, sometimes nearer and sometimes further off. In the dead of night, many shining eyes were seen, peering over the brow of the hill. Some advanced almost to the ring of stones. At a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape could be seen, halted, gazing at them. A shuddering howl broke from him, as if he were a captain, summoning his pack to the assault. All right. Um... First, the description of the, um, so notice sort of the shape of this as we're setting up. Remember what we just had in the previous paragraph was that conversation between Pippin and Sam. Remember it was a couple weeks ago we were talking about that. Um, and Sam's reassurance, right, that he was willing to wager that whatever end lay in store for old Gandalf, um, it wasn't going to be a wolf's belly. Um, so here they are. They climbed to the top of a small hill under which they had been sheltering. It was crowned with a knot of old and twisted trees about which lay a broken circle of boulder stones. Um, we don't get any hint that there is any, um, that this is a, a ruin of some kind, right? It, it sounds kind of like it. I, the, the situation here, I think, and I know you guys are going to tease me for bringing it up, um, but the situation here, I think, is designed to recall the situation at Weathertop. Um, there, too, they were, now they weren't sheltering up on top of the hill there, right? Um, but there, too, we have the um, the hill with the, with the, you know, the, the, broken stones around the top of it. In that case, it was the ruin of the tower, right? Um, you have them waiting in the dark for an inevitable attack. Um, you have them even lighting a fire because, uh, you know, in defiance of the possibility that it's going to lead the enemy right to them um, because the enemy is going to um, find them whether or not they light a fire. Right. It's not exactly the same. The wolves not exactly the same as the as the black riders. But the situations, it seems to me, are are pretty noticeably parallel. 
Um, yeah, and I agree. We're not told, um, Matt, that that these are old and twisted holly trees necessarily, but I agree. It is an echo of the crown of holly um, that was on the the hilltop next to the dell in Holland. Yes. Um, so once again, the hobbits are, you know, sort of hunkered down inside a ring, this time on top of the hill instead of in that dell under Weathertop, um, waiting to be attacked by unknown dark forces, right? Now, this time, the dark force, it's just wolves, right? Sam's confident because, you know, if Gandalf is going to be for it, you know, after all, Old Strider did just kind of prophesy uh, Aragorn, or, uh, Gandalf's death or something, right? I mean, at least he told him to, you know, watch himself. Um, and Sam was, well, I don't want to say dismissive. That makes it sound too light. But, you know, expressed his confidence that Gandalf, for one, was not going to be killed by a bunch of wolves. And, of course, we talked about the irony of that, that um, Gandalf indeed almost was killed by a bunch of wolves in The Hobbit. Now, um, so Sam is cue, Sam cues Pippin and through Pippin us to kind of um, take this sort of lightly, right? Um, now, Kurtzman says, I thought these were wargs. Well, that's one of the questions, right? Um, what's the difference between a warg and a wolf? Tolkien doesn't really say. We're introduced to the wolves, which are often called wolves, um, in uh, in The Hobbit. And we're told that those are wargs. Um, they seem to be more intelligent. We're not given any reason to believe. So, of course, you'll remember in, for instance, the Peter Jackson films, the wargs were made to look barely even canine, right? They look kind of more like hyenas than they looked like wolves. Um, the wargs, as they're described um, in um, uh, in the Hobbit, there's there we're not given any indication that they're different from regular wolves, apart from the fact that they're intelligent and have their own language. Um, so that's that. As far as we, I mean, that it's not to say that that proves that there's no other difference, um, but clearly. They're creatures that you would look at and characterize as a wolf. At least that's what Bilbo does, right? And they're probably larger than normal wolves if the goblins ride them. But of course, Mudmore, that depends on exactly how um, large the goblins are themselves, right? The, if the goblins are quite small, um, uh, if the goblins are quite small, then they could ride and you know, if, like a wolves are fairly big, um, you know, from a canine perspective, uh, wolves are pretty big. Um, so a, a full-sized timber wolf could support a reasonably sized goblin, right? Um, uh, depending on how large the the the, the goblin was. Um, but um, uh. Yeah, Bjorning, I agree. Bjorning says, I feel like uh, orcs are generally smaller in stature than men and elves. The Uruk High were notable for being man-sized. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, 
I agree that goblins do seem to be um, goblins and orcs. Uh, you know, again, interchangeable uh, words um, do seem to be in general smaller than uh, smaller than humans for sure. Um, I believe that the word warg, uh, though somebody can look this up, I believe it's just another one of those places where he is adapting an, uh, an Anglo-Saxon word, wayarg, um, in, in Old English. Um, uh, and he's just kind of shortening it a little bit to warg. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Anyway, so, um, right, Lincoln, exactly. There's no, um, the fight between, right, Lincoln points out that Sam and Frodo can pass for orcs at close range with the right equipment. Um, so orcs presumably are smaller than humans generally. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, that, that certainly does seem to support the idea if all of the orcs are, you know, five to six feet tall, Frodo and Sam would really stand out, wouldn't they, um, on that march through Mordor. Um, so yes, yes, presumably. Um, and uh, and yes, the, the orcs of the Misty Mountains are the smallest and weakest. Remember, there are the three different species of orcs that we will meet in the Two Towers. Uh, when Merry and Pippin are being orc dragged uh, through Rohan, and um, they're, they're they're the smallest, um, the smallest and weakest of those three different strains. Um, yes, yeah, exactly, Adric. That's just uh, just what I was thinking of. The word uh, warg uh, in Old English, um, which would be warg in Tolkien's preferred Mercian dialect. Yeah, exactly, as is often the case. It's the same with Beorn. Beorn means bear. Um, and also warrior, right? Um, Bjorn is kind of a joke. I mean, in a couple different ways, right? It's sort of a play. Like the word Bjorn means bear, but it also means human warrior who's very strong and powerful, right? Um, that is, they use the word literally to refer to bear. They use the word sort of more metaphorically to refer to warrior, but it, it can be either one. And so Tolkien gives that name to the dude who can be a bear or a warrior at will, right? Which is fun. Um, but um, yes, it is true that in Old English, as uh, Eadric says, um, uh, in Old English, Weyarg can also mean monster or outlaw. Yes, and I would um, I would remind people of the outlaw band that Turin joins um, in the Children of Hurin. And uh, those are those are called wargs. Those are called wolf. Um, you know the 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 you know the wolfmen, for exactly that reason. Um, wolves were bears were like warriors, right? Wolves are like thieves. They're like outlaws. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, good, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, Dolor Stoke says there's a hill in Worcestershire called uh, Breeden Hill, which literally means hill, hill, hill. Um, from the three parts of the words, all mean, all mean hill. Uh, that's exactly that Tolkien was all about that kind of place name. Of course, as we know, he he loved doing that kind of thing. Um, 
and uh, he really enjoyed finding those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, okay. So, um, back to our situation here. In the midst, they, they lit a fire, for there was no hope that darkness and silence would keep their trail from discovery by the hunting packs. Once again, we see the situation, we're reminded of the situation, which even Boromir immediately acknowledged, um, and what Gandalf was anticipating, right? Once we've been spotted, once the hunters of the enemy are upon us, we are not going to be able to sneak over land. They are now officially exposed. We can see why Gandalf was thinking that there was no point in even continuing to attempt secrecy um, when uh, when they came down from the mountain. Um, the parallels, I mean, if we're sensitive to the parallels to the Weathertop situation, there are some interesting things that we will notice that are not said, right? Um, it's not just that fire... Uh, they don't just light a fire because they might as well, right? Um, we're not told again explicitly, Boromir's horn, that fire is our friend in the wilderness, right? But we should have already learned that lesson from the first time. Um, the other thing that we might remember is that, you know, the the hope with which they stood together, right? The song that Aragorn sang was also a defense for them, right? What exactly are they facing? Now, again, from all that we've heard so far, literally heard, right? It seems that there's a pack of wolves after them. That's very dangerous, right? Pippin is afraid because there's not enough of the breed of Bandobras, the bull roarer in him. But Sam's confident, confident that Gandalf isn't going to be at by mere wolves, right? And yet again, the parallel, I think, already sets us up, already sets us up to wonder about these wolves. The parallel to the attack by the Black Riders, right? Um, and... As you will probably remember, we spent some time looking at that and the spiritual nature of that assault. From a purely physical standpoint, there, it, not much happened, right, in the Dell under Weathertop, um, either on offense or defense, frankly. Um, from a, you know, from an action movie standpoint, the attack on Weathertop is not very interesting to see from the outside. Especially since most of the characters involved are invisible at the time. Um, but, but the spiritual conflict is real and important, right? It definitely, it definitely matters. Yeah, Weathertop was more of a psychological thriller. Exactly. So we're left, the parallels here, I think, leave us asking the question. The parallels that we're picking up, does that mean this is going to be similar? 
or you know, is it sort of a contrast? Right, we're supposed to remember that, but uh, but notice notice how this is different. We turn from the setting to their experience. Round the fire they sat, and those that were not on guard dozed uneasily. Poor Bill the pony trembled and sweated where he stood. The description of Bill. Notice Bill is the only one whose actions are described. I mean, apart from sitting round the fire, right? Which by itself, round the fire they sat, right? I mean, that first sentence, you take that out of context, right? Round the fire they sat and those that were not on guard dozed uneasily. Apart from the word uneasily, there's no indication that anything untoward is happening here, right? Um... So, in other words, notice how Tolkien does, once again, as he does so often, declines to tell us what people are feeling, right? He describes what's happening, but then he gives us this one other detail. Bill and Bill's fear. Geiger, you're right. Lots of time does pass in these paragraphs. We get the sense that without drawing us into, without making it feel like torment to us, we are invited to imagine the agonizing passage of time with the howls growing ever nearer and the anxiety increasing and increasing and wondering when enemies were going to burst in on them. Um, again, like Weathertop Curtinus. Yes, you're right. Um, them sitting around the fire. Do you think they're just sitting around the fire, you know, toasting marshmallows or whatever, right? I mean, probably, I have to think, under these circumstances, they're sitting around the fire facing outwards, right? Um, you know, even those that are not on guard. Um, I mean, we're told those that are not on guard dozed uneasily. We're not told how many are not on guard, right? How many guards exactly do they have? Um uh, they're trying to sleep. Much time is clearly passing if they're not just drawing their swords and standing back to back, right? But um, um, trying to rest while they can. Um, but poor Bill the Pony. Poor Bill the Pony trembled and sweated where he stood. We're not told exactly what Bill is feeling either. Just a description of his physical behaviors, right, of his physical manifestations. The trembling and sweating in fear of Bill um, is a, a moving... Do I think so, someone was asking um, uh, if this is Sam writing? Possibly. Um, do I... Can I imagine Sam being the one to interject how poor Bill the Pony was uh, was taking the whole situation? Yeah, I can imagine. So, no, even poor Bill, right? Sounds like Sam. I, get, I mean, he he uses that phrase, right? Um, poor Bill the Pony trembled and sweated where he stood. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, uh, Faramirian, we are going to need to remember this. This is setting up something as well, 
it has a wonderful effect here because, again, by describing Bill's terror, we see what the rest of the party seems to be successfully not expressing. Pippin was just expressing his uncertainty and his fear and his um, uh, his sense of his own inadequacy, right? His sense of his own uh, his own failure and and the pointlessness of his being uh, on the quest and you know in the end. Um, but in addition, there's a bit of the long game that's being played here with Bill the Pony as well. Um, we will be remembering this sentence when we get to Sam's indignant response. Um, uh, when uh, Bill's going to be cut loose. Um, yeah, yeah. And Almaria, I agree. Sam's worry about the pony despite the wolves. Um, it does seem... Uh, yeah, it's a way to... I'm thinking about Sam and Sam's grumbling. Remember we said before at several points that Sam gives voice to things that Frodo seems to be feeling and that seems to be part of Sam's job. And one of the reasons why Frodo finds Sam's complaining and negative comments comforting, right? Because Sam is giving voice to the thing that he, Frodo can't say because of his position, right? Because of the role that he needs to be playing. Well, Bill seems to be expressing what the hobbits themselves, right? What Sam himself um, is trying very hard not to express outwardly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The howling of the wolves was now all round them, sometimes nearer and sometimes further off. In the dead of night, many shining eyes were seen peering over the brow of the hill. Some advanced almost to the ring of stones. What's happening here? Right? What's, what's kind of... What's going on? with these wolves. The howling of the wolves was now all round them, sometimes nearer and sometimes further off. This is not just a pack of wolves pursuing them, right? I believe what we're being asked to understand is that wolves are gathering here. Why do they keep howling? Not just, I think, to terrify their victims. But yes, J.J., I agree that the howling suggests communications. And that the sometimes nearer and sometimes further off suggests that you've got one group of wolves who has found them and is communicating with other groups of wolves as they are gathering and waiting. And those who have come in sooner are waiting for the reinforcements to arrive. This seems to be a planned attack. Yes, Geiger, I agree. It does suggest intelligence. It does suggest planning here. Um, 
And Johannes, it is a bit like Crick Hollow and the Wraiths waiting outside. We do get the Wraiths lurking around the Dell and Weathertop too, um, but that was at least partially, it seemed, nullified by Aragorn's song about Baron and Luthien. Um, in Crick Hollow, we see sort of the fuller effect, right, of them standing around the house for hours uh, before finally moving in. And the wolves seem to be doing a similar thing once again. Um, we have that parallel between how the wolves are acting and how the ring raids acted. But certainly, I believe, we're supposed to understand that these wolves are intelligent, that they're coordinated together, multiple packs coordinating together, that wolves would act together as a pack, totally normal, right? That multiple packs would be coordinating their search across the countryside and then coming together all for a unified assault against this hilltop, that is not normal, right? And of course, that in its way should not surprise us, right? We've seen very not normal behavior of this kind, right? That is not normal, be you know, animals acting, animals are apparent animals acting in a way that was just not normal for animals. Um, of course, the last time it was the, the genocide of crows, who was not acting like any group of birds, you know, of crows, spontaneously acts, um, going back and forth and systematically searching out the entire countryside. Um, yes, you're right, JJ. We've had a genocide of crows. When you have many, many murders of crows all gathered together, we decided it was a genocide of crows. If uh, What's a corresponding supergroup of wolves called? A super pack. Ambrosius, yeah, you're exactly correct. Yeah, there can be no two, no two, uh, no two thoughts. Yeah, a super pack of wolves. Yeah, no, that's, that's clearly, that, that's the answer. <laughs> that's the answer. I mean, I kind of don't like to make a political reference, but it's, yeah, it's a super pack. Yeah, clearly. Um, uh, yeah, okay. But yes, as I, as Conctator uh, uh, and Bjorning were both just saying, um, <laughs> a wolf gang is pretty good, though, Barton Dill. <laughs> anyway, okay, okay. Um, uh, as Kunktator and Bjorning were just suggesting, I do also think the parallel suggests we're, we're, we've, you know, several elements of this scene recall fairly sharply other occasions in which the ring raids act just like this, not just because they were coordinating, you know, a military assault, but because they were conducting spiritual warfare on their victims that were in the midst of their ring of fear and despair. And I, I, the, the preparation that we have, those parallels seem to suggest that a similar thing might be happening here. Um, many shining eyes were seen peering over the brow of the hill. Um, they're getting into place and waiting, right? They're not, um, yeah not acting like animals. At a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape could be seen, halted, gazing at them. Um, notice. 
It's a wolf shape. We're told of the howling of the wolves. When they hear the howls, they're described as wolves and wolf voices. Um, the wolf shape. On the one hand, this, I think, is definitely being differentiated from a normal wolf. Not because it doesn't look like a wolf. Not because it looks like a hyena instead, right? Um, but because it's greater, right? Larger than a normal wolf, right? That is no normal wolf. It's a great dark wolf shape. And yes, Tony, I agree. Hyphenated word alert, right? Um, yeah. Um, hyphenated word alert. When Tolkien uses hyphenated words, I think I I agree. This is the this is the this is the 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 Sparrow theory, right? Sparrow Alden's theory from Signum, um, that when Tolkien uses hyphenated words like this, he is trying to convey a concept which has a single word to represent it in a different language, and has to be translated into English in a hyphenated sense. So that whether it's in Westron itself or perhaps one of the Elvish languages or something, um, there's a word for wolf shape. They have vocabulary for that. We don't have vocabulary for that in English, but they had vocabulary for that. And so we, um, we, he conveys that with the hyphenation. Um, I still generally love that theory. If you look up boulder stones, it's similar. That's a strange phrase. Um, I mean, if you just take out the hyphen, it sounds quite strange. A broken circle of boulder stones. Well, yes, most boulders are stones, right? Um, I think that most modern, mo somewhere between most and all modern editors would get out their red pen at that point and say, um, you don't need to say stones, professor. You just said boulders. Right. If they're boulders, they're stones. So, you know, you could trim that down. Right. Not all stones are boulders. It's true, Kurtzimus, but all boulders are stones. Right. So um, you don't really you don't really need that. Right. Um, but um, Tolkien felt that he did need that. Right. And he hyphenated it. What's more. Um, why do you think so? I wonder. Broken circle of boulder stones. Do you think... Do you think that he might be suggesting that it's a ruin? He's not drawing attention. He's not calling it a ruin. He's not... You know, they're not inspecting it and thinking about that. Um... Yeah, two juice man, that's just what I was thinking. He says boulder stone, I think, implies that the circle of stones is a made structure, but very crude or tumble down. If it were just stones, it would be clear they had been erected. And if it were just boulders Oh, sorry, I lost you there. If it were just boulders, they could be naturally occurring. Boulder stones seems to straddle the line. Yeah. The word the, the, the boulder half of that phrase tells you the size, right? It just said a broken circle of stones. You might possibly picture, you know, 
like cinder block sized stones or something, right? Um, uh, you know, like just a, a sort of small fairy ring around the the crown of the of the hill. Um, no, no, these are these are boulder stones, but they're not just boulders; they're boulder stones. Um, and I agree that that suggests to me that they're probably the remnants of some kind of structure, um, some kind of, uh, uh, or you know, whether it, you know, were these old standing stones from ancient ancient days? Was were these are these broken stones from a tower? That was there in only slightly ancient days, right? This is exactly the kind of question we're always asking during our field trip portion in Lotro at the end of our classes when we're looking at places around how they have depicted the countryside uh, in Lotro, especially up in the Arnorian region that we've been looking at. And we've been asking many questions about what stage of history do we think this particular ruin or these particular parts of particular ruins are from? is uh, one of my favorite things to do in Lotro. Um, but yeah, two Jewish men, that's exactly my the the um, the analysis of, bo of boulder stones that I was um, that I was thinking of as well. And Cal Elros, I think I agree that a broken circle implies that it was once complete, possibly, possibly. Um, I mean, you could just describe a natural, bunch of rocks right as a kind of a broken circle um but um but yeah I, but but i agree i think it's, it's at least suggestive of the idea that it was once a complete circle but has now been broken yeah yeah um yeah yeah um yes um Okay. Yeah, it could be a hinge. Um, right, Tony, of course, is recalling the um, message that uh, Legolas was picking up from the stones, right? Hi, they builded us. Um, yes, yes. We didn't see any of that, or much of that at least, um, earlier on. We heard about it, right, but we didn't see it. Are we seeing it here? That seems... Very possible, right? That seems that seems very likely, even that we're getting that kind of um, kind of kind of subtly here. Um, yes, Josh, I agree. The boulder stones were big enough that the wolf shape was seen between them, not over them. So higher than eye level, it seems. Yeah, yeah, I I, I definitely think that the stones, the boulder stones, are are probably you know, something like eight to 10 feet tall um, because there's no question of yeah, this, howsoever great the dark wolf shape is, they can only see it at a gap uh, in the circle of the stones. So they can't see it over uh, the rocks. So yeah, I think that that's, that, that seems exactly right. Um, Kurtzimus is wondering if this is the ancient meeting place of the wolves. Of course, you're thinking of the Hobbit, right? Um, where they took refuge, the dwarves and, and Bilbo and Kandalf took refuge at the very meeting place, right? Where they were supposed to be meeting with the goblins. Um, I don't think we have any reason to believe that, but the parallel is interesting, right? Um, I rather doubt it, but um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> two juice man suggests very specifically. I imagine them about the size of a Fiat Five Hundred. Okay, sure. Yeah, little European cars, possibly. Possibly. Um, I, I think I picture them as being a little larger than a European car, Two Juice Man, mostly because if they were only the size of a European car, the wolves would just jump over them. Um, and I don't know that they do that. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think they're probably bigger. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Do they? Do they leap over? Yeah, maybe they do. But I think, I, anyway, I think they keep, depends on how great the dark wolf shape is, right? Um, if he doesn't appear until the gap, I'm thinking SUV shape size. Maybe a little smaller than SUV size. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, at a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape. Not wolf, but wolf shape. Could be seen halted, gazing at them. A shuddering howl broke from him, as if he were a captain summoning his pack to the assault. This is one of those really fun... Um, this is one of those really fun... Similes. Not simile. Yeah, it is a simile. One of these really fun similes. Tolkien does this... More than once. On the one hand, he's making a comparison, right? The wolf howls as if he were a captain summoning his pack to the assault. So he compares him to the leader of a human military, you know, squad, right? Who, you know, platoon, which is being ordered forward to attack. And he, so on the, on the one hand, it's, it's, a, it's a simile, right? That's what, that's what it's like. It's like that. But at the same time, it also seems to be that. Right? That is, it's a, it's a, oops, sorry. It's a comparison, but it's also not a comparison. It's just a description as if he were a captain summoning his pack to the assault. This kind, this kind of, when we get this kind of a sentence in Tolkien, I always want to add afterwards, like, as if, right? As I, I, you know, there's a bunch of times when Tolkien does that. When he puts in an as if, which is ostensibly a comparison, but it's not really a comparison. It's just, it's just, um, it's just a description. It's, telling you something about the situation. Um, well, Kurtzimus says he's technically not a captain. Well, I, if by technically you mean he's not, um, you know, undergone some kind of formal promotion ceremony and, you know, maybe has fancier epaulets than the other guys, um, Maybe, but um, uh, but he seems to be acting 
precisely as a captain, right? Not a not a not a sergeant, not a corporal, right? He is the leader of a whole group of squads, right? We know there were multiple packs coming in, all of whom presumably have their own alphas, right? Um, but he's the alpha of all of the alphas, so he's, yeah, he's a captain, right? That would be, um, that would be just exactly what he is, right? Um, yeah, Aspen, I'm really interested, um, I'm really interested in that word, halted. I don't know if you noticed, but I was noticing when I was reading it aloud, it's hard. I kept adding a pause in front of it. At a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape could be seen halted, gazing at them. Um, it's, a, it's an odd construction. Could be seen halted, gazing at them. And yes, Cal Elros, halt is a military formation word. Um, I agree that it's not needed. That's another word that a modern editor might want to take out, right? At a gap, and just say at a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape could be seen gazing at them. Or no, a modern editor would say, oh, don't use the passive voice because the passive voice is always evil because we hate a part of our language for some reason. And so you should never, ever use one of the perfectly valid, I mean, man, we already massively underutilize the passive voice in English compared to languages like Greek. And, um, uh, and then here we have generations of English teachers and, and uh, editors trying to stamp out its usage entirely. Um, but um, anyway, sorry, sorry, trifle. It's not that I'm, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm salty about this. I just feel defensive of the passive voice, which is super useful. Now I'm not complaining about editors. I'm defending the passive voice. That's all. That's all. I'm just saying. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, passive voice, perfectly legitimate, uh, way to express oneself, as Tolkien is doing here. Um, so let's look at this. Vardendil says English is poorer for lacking the middle voice. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. Um, but um, but yeah. So look at look at what is the effect of his use of the passive voice. Well, let's think of what um, uh, what our you know what our modern editor, whom I seem to be teasing all night here tonight would want to make of that sentence, right? Our modern editor would say, no, no, no. Just say, uh, they saw, right? Not could be seen. They could see a great dark wolf shape at a gap in the circle, gazing at them. Right? Or they could see a great dark wolf shape gazing at them from a gap in the circle, maybe, right? Um, that would be the active voice way to you know, make that sentence a little more snappy. But what's the difference? What's the difference? By the way, this is a really fun exercise. I find this a really fun exercise to do. Um, it's one way to get at when you're noticing something, like you notice something like, hey, this sentence is in the passive voice. A great dark wolf shape could be seen. Um, and But then you're, you're thinking, 
what's the significance of that? Like, so what? Who cares? Who cares that it's in the passive? What does that, what's the effect of that? What does that contribute? Well, one way to get at that is to change it, right? Put it in the active and then notice what's the difference. What is the difference in the effect between saying they could see a great dark wolf shape at a gap in the circle? Or they could see a great dark wolf shape gazing at them from a gap in the circle. What's the difference there? The difference is, first of all, where the emphasis is placed, right? The, pre the emphasis is placed on the wolf shape, not on the... It's, 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 it's all about the object of the action, right? In English, the passive voice is just where you take and you, you, you take the object of the action and you make it the subject of the sentence, right? The action that's happening is that they, like the hobbits, are seeing a wolf shape. That's, that's the action that's occurring here, right? But instead of using the active voice, use the passive voice, which has the emphasis of taking the object of the action, the wolf shape, and foregrounding it in the sentence. A great dark wolf shape could be seen. This sentence is about the wolf shape. That's the subject of the sentence, right? That's what the sentence is about. That's the effect of the passive voice. But as several of you, um, uh, as several of you are pointing out, um, it also kind of leaves more scope for imagination. And this is a, a common trend we have seen in Tolkien's descriptions, is that he tends not to tell us what people are thinking. He doesn't want to draw the attention to the hobbits. He doesn't want to interject them here. We know that they're the ones who are doing the seeing here, but he doesn't want, us, he doesn't want to draw our attention to them. He wants us to experience what they're experiencing. By putting this in the passive voice, a great dark wolf shape could be seen gazing at them. We are invited, as several of you have pointed out, to imagine ourselves into the position of those who are the ones doing the seeing, right? We're sitting alongside them, just seeing what they see, right? Their action of seeing isn't what matters. What matters is what they see, and we are shown what they see, right? Through his use, through this emphasize here um, of... Uh, um, of uh, of the of the object, yeah. So so again, just, I, I can see some people are confused. The reversal of subject verb order has nothing to do with passive voice. It's about taking the object of the of the verb and making it the subject of the sentence. It's the difference between the dog bit the man. That's active. The dog is the is the is the subject of the verb bit. Right, direct object man. The dog bit the man. In the passive voice, that same sentence, that same idea is the man was bitten by the dog, right? The man was bitten by the dog. Same concept, same action occurring, right? But you've now made the man who is the object of the action, you've now made him the subject of the sentence, right? Now this is, and you can see the difference, right? The dog bit the man, that's a sentence about a dog, right? The man was bitten by the dog, that's a sentence about the man, right? Um, so it's not about word order. It's about 
what is the subject and what is the verb. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony says the passive voice also helps to retain the mystery. They don't really know what they're seeing or what it means. Um, yeah, there's a certain there's a certain amount there. There's the passive voice is always um, where it gets more mysterious, where it gets indefinite. In the little example I gave about the man and the dog, I left both of them in the sentence. Right. That is, I, I still said the man was bitten by the dog. I, I left by the dog in there, but you don't have to. You can. That's just a prepositional phrase. You can take it out. Right. You can just say the man was bitten. Um. If all that you care about is the person and their medical condition, <laughs> right, um, it's it's okay to say the man was bitten. Now it helps to know that it was by a dog and instead of by a mosquito or by a crocodile. But still, um, you know, it, it's not that that's not useful information. Um, but you can just you don't. It's not grammatically necessary. You can just say the man was bitten, and that might be all that you care about. Um, so um, uh, anyway. Um, but that that's the point, right? The point is that the doer of the action, like who did the biting, right? The man was bitten by what? By whom, right? Um, that's uh, that kind of mystery is something that, for instance, high school English teachers are very uneasy about because in their defense, high school uh, English students tend to be rather poor judges of how to deploy this mystery constructively and deliberately. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so this has been your grammatical aside for the evening. Um, but anyway, the point is, the point that I am trying to make is I think Tolkien accomplishes some really interesting things by using the passive voice there. One of which is the foregrounding of wolf shape here. Um, and then I agree that we get two verb concepts, right? What he's doing. And neither of them are very lupine, right? We get two participles. More grammar. We get two par participles, right? Could be seen halted, gazing. We get a past participle, halted. We get a present participle, gazing. Could be seen halted, gazing at them. Past participle tells you a description of his state. What has he done? He has... Halt it, right? The present participle, gazing, tells you what he's doing right now, right? He is gazing at them. This is what they see him doing. Halt and gazing. He is halted and he is gazing. And neither one of those actions are normal lupine actions, right? It's one thing for a wolf to stop, right? To halt. As if in military formation um, is a little unusual. Gazing, right? 
um, for him just to stand there and stare at them is, well, a normal wolf might possibly do that. Um, but it's interesting. Leaf of Starlight, what a wonderful observation. That it's an interesting parallel to the thinking fox that halts and considers the hobbits. And this is a much more sinister version of that. Um, love it. Love it. Yes. Um, yes, you're right. Halted, gazing at them. Um, and I would add, um, you know, I would add, um, Leaf of Starlight that, um, the parallel is actually kind of suggestive, right? With the thinking fox, we're told that the joke there, right? The funny thing about that passage is that we're told the thought that's going through the fox's head at that time, right? Hobbits, four of them, right? What next, right? It's, you know, this sort of world-weary fox who has seen it all before, right? But this is a new one on him, right? Um, The fox seems to put together an extremely human that's not really an attempt to imagine you know um, what does the fox think um, it's not an attempt to kind of put yourself put put oneself inside the the mind of your average fox the amusing thing about that passage is it you know it projects the sort of human attitude um, uh, and this sort of world weary human attitude uh, into the mind of into the mind of the fox um the wolf here we already have reason to believe that the wolves have been communicating have been planning right now um we have him halted as if at the forefront of a military formation gazing at them um, as if in con- intelligent consideration, though we are not told what is going on inside the head of this particular canine. Um, now, Bjorning, I think that that's really interesting. Um, he says, I see the word halted as a verb conveying the tension of a pointer just about to break on its prey. Um, possibly. Possibly. Um yeah, yeah. Um, and then a shuddering howl broke from him. Shuddering. Um, I I don't know what to make of the word shuddering. Um, is a shuddering howl a howl that shudders? Or is it a howl that makes you shudder? Yeah, Bricktails, that's exactly it. Was the wolf shuddering or were the hearers shuddering is exactly right. Possibly both, right? Yeah, why not both? Um, a howl with vibrato? Probably. Probably, Edith. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Nancy's wondering if we're assuming the wolf's gender, I don't know, the narrator seems to be. Um, but of course, we have to be, I, 
I'm trying to be careful to avoid assuming even its biology. Right. Um, but he's described with masculine pronouns here in this sentence. Um, yeah. Yeah. That it's so forceful it caused him to shudder? Possibly. Possibly. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at um, uh, Josh's mischievous suggestion uh, that Tolkien wasn't 100% sure that wolf women existed. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, right, right. Okay. A, huttering a, shudder a huttering showl. A shuddering howl broke from him as if he were a captain summoning his pack to the assault. As if. As if. Um, yeah, broke from him is really incredible phrasing, isn't it? Um, it's like it just... It's not so much that he calls out, right? That he starts howling. It's like he this howl had been welling up inside him and it finally broke loose um like he in with his halting and his gazing had been restraining himself and his restraint now breaks as all of them had been restraining themselves um and this restraint now breaks as if it itself is not is it's is it possible Lupita, that the suggestion here is that the wolf is not completely driving the bus here, right? That um, that there's something else at play? Maybe. Maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Johanna says, four and a half years ago, I asked you if these wolves were the werewolves Gandalf was referring to when he was talking to Frodo and Rivendell, and you said, we'll see when we get there. Are we there yet? Just about, Johannes. Just about. In these next few weeks, um, we shall indeed see. This is the first thing that we get here, is the, um, the use of great dark wolf shape. Right? Um, the the, our narrator here is not committing to the idea that these are just wolves. This is one of the first hints that we get. Prior to this, when we're just hearing them in the distance, we're just getting phrases like the howling of the wolves. Right? When we see him, or rather, when he could be seen... Um, oh, by the way, I didn't even... We didn't even, we talked so much about the passive voice, we didn't even talk about the mood of that verb. Oh my goodness. Do you notice that? It's not, he doesn't just say a great dark wolf shape was seen. He says it could be seen. It's not only the passive voice, but Kate, exactly. It's in the subjunctive mood. Oh, man, talk about your underutilized English constructions. Or conditional, I know, I know, I know. Um, but in any case, the point is, I know it's probably not really uh, subjunctive. Anyway, the point is, it's it, it could be seen. 
it could be seen. You see what that implies? See what that implies? It, it could be seen. He doesn't promise that everybody sees it, right? Why not? Why would some, it can be seen. Yeah, April, because some don't like to look. I think the word could in that sentence invites us to imagine that someone first fish like as it might be Bill the Pony might have their eyes closed at this point right um, this moment is so tense and so terrifying not everyone around the fire is necessary able to meet the gaze of the great dark wolf shape that could be seen could be seen if you look right but I don't think everyone is right. April or possibly looking through your fingers, right? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, again, I don't think that it implies, um, I don't think that it implies that just like no one noticed it yet. Right. Um, that, that, that I rather doubt. And I rather doubt that. Um, it's just because of the way that this has all been, I mean, they're play they're plainly observing these other things. They're all listening to the you know, they're listening to the howls. They're, you know notice the difference. In the dead of night, many shining eyes were seen. They're totally seeing the shining eyes peering over the brow of the hill. They notice even that some advanced almost to the ring of stones. Um so when in the midst of that a great dark wolf shape could be seen, halted, gazing at them. Um, I th yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it could be seen. Um, anyway, so so yes, two Jews, man. I think that's exactly right. It increases the reader's immersion in the story. It's just short of second person narration. You see a great wolf shape. This is Tolkien, the, the DM, the dungeon master. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. This is, in moments like this, we can see, I believe, exactly like that. Um, Tolkien involving the reader in the narration is one of the things that makes this scene so tense. Um, Tolkien is marvelous at doing this kind of thing, at not just telling us what people are feeling, not even just describing what's happening. Um but inviting us to imagine ourselves in that place. At a gap in the circle, a great dark wolf shape could be seen, halted, gazing at them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... It, I, I don't think that could is... Could is not simple past. Simple past here would simply be um, was just like he said, um, the shining eyes were seen. That's, that's passive voice also, but that's just, that's just past. Um, many shining eyes were seen, um, here, a great dark wolf shape could be seen. That's conditional with the implied condition. If you look right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yep. The levels of linguistic abstraction add to the horror effect, Leaf of Starlight. I quite agree. I quite agree. Um, would the firelight make it even harder to see the wolf, Jackie is wondering. Um, right, and Bjorning had suggested that um, it's almost like the firelight doesn't illuminate the wolf shape. Um, yeah, in one sense... I don't know. I don't think it's just a reference to the limitations of the lighting, right? Because the whole point is that it could be seen. Like, it's They're not saying, like, it could have been seen if, you know, the light was better. But since it was pretty dark, you know, they couldn't really see it. Um, that's that's not what it's saying. Um, um, I see. Gil Donovan says, but all that could be seen was the shape. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, a great dark wolf shape, which is thereby heightening sort of the question, right? What is that thing? It is a wolf, right? It's pretty big. It's a wolf shape in any case, right? Um, yeah, it does make it creepier, for sure. Yeah. And the eyes. A shadow with eyes. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. Join us next time when Gandalf steps out and addresses the wolf. And we will see some things fairly clearly. Gandalf will communicate fairly clearly his own opinion of what exactly they are looking at and the circumstances of this particular encounter. Um, we will shift to our field trip now. Uh, thanks, everybody, for... Um, uh, for... for for joining us um, uh, for our book discussion. Um, I love Gandalf's speeches in this uh, scene. Been really looking forward to this. Um, tonight, in our field trip, we're going to return to Tharbad. We've been exploring Tharbad, which we've been looking forward to exploring in Locho for like more than a decade. Um, thanks, everybody, uh, who could join us here. And uh, I look forward to coming back next week. And in the meanwhile, Back to Tharbon. How are you this evening, Delorie? I am doing all right. Uh, I will have to meet you there. I accidentally uh, timed out and I have to log in again. No, no problem. Well, I'm going to be doing that too, as I pretty but, much always um, do. It's it's interesting examining this in prose. Um, I I don't know if you know this about me, but I love horror movies and like the craft of okay. horror movies and like what goes into a good horror movie. Mm -hmm. um, I don't read a lot of horror, generally because they are allowed to put in so many more things you're not allowed to show in movies. <laughs> right. But the the key thing about horror movies, and this has been proven time and time again, is that things are always scarier when you tell people and don't show them. You let the audience use their imagination. And this is the first time I've seen sort of prose doing that. He's not saying right. it's a wolf and they see it. He is right. building up these layers of obfuscation and, and unclarity to the point yes. where your imagination is spinning out of control and creating this monster wolf. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's uh, um, those few sentences there in that description are really yeah. pretty cool. And of course, and I then combine it with, Bill's visceral reaction to it, the sweating and the trembling, which yes, none of these other Bill's princes reaction. are going to do. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Very animal kind of feeling scene. You feel like a little scared rabbit. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Tony says, interestingly, um, that that's kind of what Tolkien does with Sauron all the way through. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in never actually like showing him to us, you know, never meeting Sauron. Yeah. 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 Being incorporeal helps. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Zach, I agree. You know, Zach says your imagination can create a whole lot worse than anything you can film. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that was always the terror of being the imaginative child. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I have a, I have a fun story about that for another day, maybe closer to Halloween. <laughs> yeah. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're, um, we're going to be doing, um, uh, sort of, spooky theme at um uh at new england moot this year which is upfitting not in the, in the second half of october so we're we're not right at halloween but we're, we're hey, close enough to, close enough for washington yeah. irving yeah yeah um big fan of that you, you yeah. should do a showing of the the, the disney short with the bing crosby <laughs> narration really right. good right one of my favorites yeah, that yeah. fun swing music. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, with right, Starlight, I start. agree. We probably will still be in the wolf sequence when we get to um, when we get to Halloween. Okay, yes. so we're heading back down to Stonecrop Encampment yep, yep, yep. by Tharbad. Although to be fair, I think every day is spooky day. Right. Right. Do you do an annual reading of Legend of Sleepy Hall? I do an annual reading of uh, Dracula, and I always try to make uh, that Hungarian inn dinner, the one with the, the stuffed eggplants and the... Yeah, the the pepper and, stuff and with pepper paprika. Kosh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the Yes. And the, the, the corn porridge. The recipes that he, that he wants to get for Mina, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're really good. It's really good comfort food. If you like paprika. No, this, I, I my Sleepy Hollow is like a, a stream like this where I'm actually reading the text aloud and my accent wavers. I try to do like a little bit of a received pronunciation and it just wanders off into the sunset. Yeah, mine always ends up in that pet cemetery. Sometimes dead is better and Pepperidge Farm remembers. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, well, let's head back to Tharbad. So... We were looking around for different layers of ruins. Most of what we were seeing, I think, was definitely... Um, I mean, my theory is still that most of what we're seeing here is old Arnorian with, okay. a, with a card with a makeover, basically. The thing we were uh, kind of hoping for, at least I was hoping for most keenly, was some kind of evidence of either original Numenorean ruins, because this almost certainly would have been uh, a, uh, a sort of a port and you know, trade town or whatever um, established by the Numenoreans when they used this river or it was um uh, or, you know, either surviving Numenorean architecture or at least um, some kind of evidence that perhaps it was um, 
you know, sort of influenced by that. And I think this is the path that obviously Boromir didn't know he should take or else he wouldn't have lost his horse. Yeah. This is like how not to lose your horse in Tharbad, right? I wanted to try it out. Yeah, like, I, I shudder to think what manner of horse losing occurred here. Were we talking like swamps of sadness and artax kind of thing? Yeah, I, I hope not. I hope not. That's uh, that's my least favorite scene in that entire movie. Um, but... Um, uh, that in the Gmork. Yeah, the Gmork, that's, that's much better. But, um, oh, it's terrifying. It is terrifying. Um, uh, but... Um, yeah, his horse returned to Edoras. His horse didn't die. Oh, okay. He just lost. Okay. He didn't say died. He said he lost it. Right? He lost it, and he couldn't find it again. It's, it's um, a pretty open phrase. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, they do refer right, to I the fact that his his horse came back riderless. Um, so uh, this was just yeah a separation. So presumably, he tried to cross the river on his horse and then he and his horse got separated ended up on opposite sides of the river the horse prudently went home to Rohan whereas Boromir went on um so um so yeah they uh um yeah they just they just kind of parted uh, parted ways there I don't know but whenever it's a Rohiric horse though I always assume that the horse was just kind of like nah I'm not doing that and just ditches him because they oh, always right, seem yeah. to be a lot smarter than the people that they're lent to. That the horse left him, right? Rather than... Yeah. 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 He was just um, looking at the sport. He saw the orcs and it's just like, ah, I'm out. <laughs> right. Right. Perhaps. Um, you know, maybe he knew that on the northern bank of the river is where the old customs house was. And he's like, look, I'm not paying those Arnorian taxes. So... I'm just going to turn around and head home here. Um, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, Valoria looks like uh, uh, Kate, who, by the way, Kate, congratulations on catching up with us today and joining us tonight. Um, All is right. trying to figure out how to join us in Tharbad. Oh, so oh yeah, be, what's your handle? If you're, yeah, you can yeah, type your name there and we can help okay anyway so we've got what we see over here certainly shows there's the cardon tower badge right so again you can clearly see the sort of cardon makeover and some newer stone but some older stone too so i, I still think this is mostly arnorian now when we did our, when we had our little peer review exercise last time we uh, were I, I we were concluding that if anything we've seen is Numenorian original it's probably those peers um, not those those ones yes um, those ones over there Um Okay. Now, one of my questions, and I'm seeing, no, maybe I wasn't just, no, I just wasn't noticing it. I'm thinking about the domes again. And I'm wondering, is that, so, like, look over here. Where was I? Not right up against the 
that boulder. I was looking that one right up there. See that pointy tower right there, the the bulbous top of the tower with a little point on it. I wish I could not be in the grass. There we go. Um, that strikes me as strange. I'm trying to figure out, do you think there's that tower is broken off or that was how it was designed to be? Uh, could be an arch, maybe? Which one are we looking at? Sorry. Sorry, the one, um, it's like due east. Due the, east. With a little, like the rounded top with the the pointy rounded top and the little... Oh, the sort of pepper shaker kind of looking thing. Yes, exactly. Very much looks like a um, sort of salt shaker here. Let me, I mean, um, do we see any other salt cellars around here? Well, I want to see those kind of uh, wings. Those are like the little... Oh, yeah, you got to control the spice sack. Sort of the fins that... Um, it does look like a big Dalek, you're right. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, we're talking about the, the, the air-resistant fins over here. Yeah, exactly. That's Those have to be broken off, right? Probably? Uh, maybe, unless it's like a, I don't know, Carillion for bells or something. Maybe. Like a bell tower? It's... Uh, I it's just of all the things that we've seen around that that's one of the towers that kind of looks most odd like most unlike the other kinds of architecture we've yeah. seen i mean when we look at things like this we saw this before which is a little bit odd right this yeah. four-way vaulted arch which is kind of like the gazebo concept that we've seen everywhere in arnorian ruins yeah. for years and years and years of exploration um but it's but definitely we, more structurally sound than that mess yeah, we've well, we, yeah, we've never really seen this kind of multiple arching thing. Normally, it's just the round gazebo business. Um, I, I think we've seen some racing fins on some of the other other collapsed towers around here. Where was that? Was that Sedgemead? I think it was Sedgemead or Nimbarth. Maybe. Maybe. But yeah, I think we were sitting there looking at it, going, "What is that?" It's hmm. like speed fins makes the tower goes faster. Right. Interesting. So um, Elizabeth suggests, um, no, wait, sorry. Oh, yeah. Rowan was suggesting we see that sort of thing all over Gondor, the arch structure. I hadn't remembered that. But then again, I wasn't when I've been running around with Grifflet for the last year or so. I haven't been doing the same kind of architectural examinations that Narnian does. But um, but of course, it would make sense that there would be Gondorian as well as Arnorian influences here. Yeah, um, the fins don't look broken. They look a lot like the other ones we've seen, which indicate that they're not broken. So that's on purpose. Right, like we can see them up on the, the top of the tower straight to the, well, to the like southwest of us up there, that tall broken tower. That we can yeah. see sort of in the distance. The, t the tower is broken, but again, like the fins on the side look very similar. Right. Yeah. Um, New will be fins that were broken. Uh, let's see. Amarea says there's a matching pepper shaker to the north. Let's see. 
You gotta have. You gotta have. If there's a salt shaker and okay. Where's the nutmeg grater? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, lots of these little isolated domey towers. Yeah. Which just don't seem to me like normal Arnorian construction. Yeah, it, again, it, it kind of gives that sort of lost art thing that we got with later Roman periods after they lost the technology for vaulted domes. Maybe. They sort of have to fudge it. Well, the, but see, but this is my question. My question is, is that, because that's possible, it's possible that they're kind of faking it here. Though, again, I just, I don't recall this it, it many just follows Tolkien towers. It follows Tolkien's timeline of, of, mm -hmm. uh, of diminished people. Right, though. of diminished, sure, no, I, I can see that. But again, what I'm, what I'm wondering is, but we don't see it diminishing in this same way, I think, in other Arnorian locations. Oh, you you know what it does remind me of? It reminds me of the thatched houses in the Brownland. Hmm, that's or, interesting. Uh, not, um, Dun Dunland? Dunland, yeah. In Dunland, yeah. Yeah, because they had that sort of pointy dome. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, though that seems, yeah, it, um, that seems a, a, a kind of a thatch issue, right? Um, but, um, but Rowan, it does look very Byzantine. I... I'm, I mean, I'm leaning towards the theory that these domey towers and things, and like, oh, you see, look, here are the fins clearly not broken. Yeah. I think Zach uh, I'm, is quite I'm seeing right them in a lot more places. Well. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely just st stylistics here. Not a, an archway that's, that's broken off. Yeah. 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 Right, sort of very Byzantine. So again, the theory I'm leaning towards is that this leans more heavily towards Numenorean architectural styles, old Numenorean architectural styles, because if this was a city that was built by the Numenoreans, then taken over and expanded by the Arnorians, because I also remember there being a lot of dome action in Anuminus as well. Yes, but those were proper domes. They weren't quite this pointy. Right. Exactly. So these are, these would be like emulations of the domes, as mm -hmm. you were suggesting, perhaps not quite as successfully. Because yeah. Numenus, of course, was built by Numenorians, like first generation Numenorians, right? Yeah. Um, whereas the expansion and development of this city would have been well past the Numenorean, you know, many, many, many generations in from the new, from the yeah. Numenorean original constructors, but still there would have been enough either memory of or record of um, or remnant of the old Numenorean construction that they would still want to try to emulate it. Yeah, yeah. Also explains why it's more beat up than the Numinous. Maybe they had that same problem with concrete that they're encountering these days. Right, maybe. I'm really interested in some of these long, uh, sort of Byzantine-looking buildings with the with the arched roofs. Yeah. Oh, right. That yeah. Look the, like early the... early Romanesque churches. Yes. Those look pretty, pretty cool. I hope we can get inside some of these. 
I don't have but yeah also like there's, there's kind of a hubris here look at like look at some of these some of these choices just are more style over function we've got these spindly columns with these giant cornices on top that probably couldn't take the weight very well we have the big yes. racing fins on the towers there's there's a right. uh, it, it, it's kind of like when rich people have too much money and not enough taste right right yeah now amathorn is asking a really interesting question which is which fell to ruin first a numinous or tharbad and i would guess a numinous only because tharbad was redone right once the capital shifted to for the capital of arnor in arthodyne times shifted to fornost like during the civil wars mm -hmm. um a would have begun to fall into neglect whereas tharbad would have been an important location we can see clearly how this was taken over by the cardolan the cardolingians right um well after the civil wars had begun so mm -hmm. i would speculate therefore that anuminous was falling into ruin prior to tharbad um I, I i agree with that um i do think anuminous is still in better condition though oh yeah than tharbad. for sure because it was better built in the first place yeah, and most of the damage is related to floods, where I, I feel like floods was the least of the worries here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right, exactly. If anything, they seem to be having uh, unflooding uh, problems in the river. By the way, if any devs are listening, I love the design here. I have no problems with the Rococo embellishments. It just doesn't fit yeah. the Illuminus. Yeah, let's let's head to. I don't see any way to enter any buildings over here. Let's just stop by the island in the middle, the uh, the kind of the castle in the in the midst there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know what? I'm like walking in kind of the wrong direction, too. You're swinging into the swamps of sadness, Cor. That's okay. I wanted to just there there were the piers, right? I wanted to see the Numenorean pillars, and uh, can we can we go upstream here? Uh, we can we try. Against the current. Uh, something tells me that's a misadventure thing. I don't know. Okay. It looks like I shouldn't be able to do this, but I'm making it. It could work. Okay. All right, we did it. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Here we are. Okay. All right. So one of the questions. So first, I want to see if we can get inside. But secondly. One of the other questions we had was, can we get any sense of what the original geography around here was before the levels of the river changed and things silting over and whatever? These stairs, I cannot think that these stairs were originally designed to end at the water level. Yeah, there are like, we've seen like, especially since like this area here, we've seen as um, like part of the dock that it extends past it. Right. I mean, the, the, if you're going to have a landing right on the water, you're not going to have it be stairs, right? Yeah. Um, so bad for uh, boats, bad for people. Right. I, exactly. I've got to think that, um, therefore the water level was lower here before. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
the other thing is erosion. There's chan uh, chances are the some of this might have been uh, banked up by uh, by uh, the banks of the island here. Right. But um, it got eroded away once we got this current doing what it's doing. Right. Yeah. The point is that he probably would have been dredging the river so that the river itself was m very much deeper than it currently is mm -hmm. so that the water level dams. itself could be lower even if the okay so here was the bridge that extended to the north bank yeah. from the central island do we have a do we have a a commensurate bridge on the other side the bridge uh, and the height of, of that bridge also suggests that oh, yeah. Oh. That is way off its moorings. Whoa, check out that uh there's one of those arched roofs you were talking about there. Yep. Whoop, oh I went the wrong way. Yeah, sorry, oh, I'm now I'm, looking out on the I'm east alive. Side. Okay. Apparently there was a little ledge below that bridge drop Oops. off. Okay. You fell off the bridge. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm good though. Right. I'm an awesome so party. Let us let's see, can we get in? Oh, big old fountain in the middle here. Oh. Well, that's really interesting because do you see uh no no gate, just an arch. Yeah. In other words, no no defensive fortifications here, even though this certainly looks like especially if the river channel on both sides is deep. Um doesn't seem well i say on both sides but actually if we go back where i just was over on the south side of this little island there's no real evidence that it was an island where did these big boulders come from were these part of the island that broke off oh i'm not sure no but I, so i'm just so i don't think there was a channel here i think that this just flooded so i don't think this used to be an island i think this used to be just connected to the south side because there, there's a bridge on the north side but yeah. there's no bridge over here just buildings all the way through which are half underwater so I think this was actually the oh, northernmost part of the south side of the city it was, it was a little peninsula attached to the other side yeah I think so I think so these I don't yeah. think are boulder stones they're just boulders yeah but where'd they come from oh I don't know the ground? I, I, don't, I don't see any cliffs up ahead. I don't... They don't look like a eroded piece of building. They don't look like they were put... I don't think they made a, a Zen garden here. No, but I don't know. I live in New brand. Hampshire, which means my whole landscape experience is of granite boulders pushing themselves through the surface of the ground, you know, a few millimeters a year. I don't know. Like, they just well, do yeah. Like that's the other one. Maybe the the grass we're standing on is earth that was worn away, and these are the Maybe. things that were underneath that didn't yes. go quietly. Oh, and granite faces yeeting off mountains too soon, Scott. It's still too soon. I've been still recovering from that blow for the last twenty two years. <laughs> The old man of the mountain of beloved memory. Okay. Um, I think it was. I remember where I was when I heard about the falling of the old man of the mountain. And uh, where I was was a place I only lived in one for one year 
which was the 2000 to 2001 year. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. With that yeah. one big snowstorm we got and I lived in that one apartment. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So here we've entered into the peaceable courtyard with no gates and no curtain walls protecting it. And we have more of these impractical arches and a big old, quite interestingly shaped, like interestingly not circular, like perfectly even bowl of a very large fountain, though no evidence of waterworks. But it's like um, it was bent, though. This area looks the, the stars are all squished up like it's bent on oh, that maybe. side, like like something fell on it. It does almost look too shallow for a fountain, but why would you have a big old bowl like that if it didn't have water in it? Well, the actual fountain receptacle is underneath it. Sure, but wouldn't it? So the, I, wouldn't you fill the upper bowl and then it would pour out through the gaps into yeah, the yeah, ab- bottom bowl? Absolutely. Yeah, I guess. I just, I feel like, I, this, you, you look at these stars and they're pretty wonky. I feel like this was once a perfect semi-circle dish. And it Maybe. Got, Beat up I don't know. Time. I see. I think it's purposeful because if you look at it, the dips line up with the trough underneath. See, mm-hmm. like that's the dip. That's the dip right there, and so the water would run out straight into the oval under. Even though the the top circle overlaps the oval of the bottom layer, where the dips come, the water wouldn't spill out of it. Yeah, this is a highly, highly ornate. Look how much ornamentation's on here. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of metal Very Rococo nonsense. Yeah. If you hop up on one of these little plinths, you look into the bowl itself. Oh. Yeah, I'm looking down at the bowl up here. More artichoke uh, petals around the side, and then... In the oh, middle like of the top circle, yeah, it does look like, like sort of like a compass rose, um, six-pointed compass rose. I don't know; they the look like kind of warped those... stars. I mean, they look like the Arnorian like a... stars, but all cut up into pieces. And hmm. yeah, like that's just it. It's the warping effect. Oh, what do you think? It spins around like a kaleidoscope. No, I mean... Well, if it did, it would look like a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear that. Yeah. Right, like sort of warped and mixed the way it would if it, if you had stars like that in a kaleidoscope. It's like a lily with a big stamen in the middle. Yep. Okay. What an odd f- facade here. Little in the way of ornamentation. There might have been something there that fell off. Also, it... <laughs> This huge, yeah. This is the servant's entrance. Look at concave this. face, yeah. And then this tiny, comparatively tiny little door. It's yeah, weird. there's definitely there was definitely something in front of it, like a like art yeah. or a tapestry or something, something, so people could enter and exit surreptitious. Yeah. There's a staircase in the south. Window, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I'm sorry, the northeast corner. Yeah, northeast, northeast. We'll head up. Ooh. But, okay. So yeah, this, look at all the river dirt that's piled up everywhere. Right. So this means that this was always a big open place in here. So this, the central building of this, what looks like a keep, isn't even really mm-hmm. a keep. It's just, 
I don't know what, this open space that leads up to. I get the feeling that we're Another here in the big dry season. Space. I get the feeling we're here in the dry season because a lot of the way the dirt's mounded down there kind of looks like it, it would be flooded at other types of year. Maybe. Fun staircase. It's a good thing we're here during the daytime, I'm just saying. You'll, you'll yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, looking absolutely. forward to the view. Okay. Whoa. And now here's, at the top is another little tower. This is a metropolis. All right, hang on. I'm going to look at the view in just a second, but... Uh-huh. It's all a jumble in here. What was up here? Another big, open, empty space that's now all messed up, of course, but... I wonder what kind of furniture they use to decorate these spaces. Or, I mean, was this always open to the sky? It looks like, I don't know, it might have had a wooden ceiling. But... Oh, yeah, yeah, no, the roof's definitely collapsed in here. Yeah. So we have these three separate levels, none of which are really... Well, I guess the bottom useful. ones are enclosed, at least. But yeah, not very useful. They're not like buildings. I mean, it's not like a... I don't know. It's very strange. I don't know what this space is for. Watchtower? Like, that's the only thing I can think of where it's like, there's nothing, there's stuff on the bottom, and then you climb up a bunch of stairs till you get to the top. All right, there's our fountain. Straight down. Oh, yeah. Well, it looks much cooler up here. Yeah. The fountain? Yeah. Well, no, even the whole city, like, it doesn't look as, like, highly ornamented and everything. It just looks, it looks more like a numinous up here. It's just, someone let the silversmith go crazy and he kind of, right. you know, like when, when you're, when you've got a bedazzling gun, and you just go nuts and suddenly you have a 50-pound <laughs> jacket covered in plastic gemstones. <laughs> right. I've never had that experience, but I believe you. I am a chronic crafter. I am a chronic overworker of everything. <laughs> right. It's very difficult to know when to stop. I can easily imagine that. Okay, so looking at the big picture of the little You're a picture, specific example, Gray. That's true. It's true. Okay. Um, all right, so... Yeah, you could get a clearer sense of where the channel of the river was. Yeah. I still can't decide whether there was any channel on the other side. There might have been a narrow one because the main bridge, like that the primary road, you know, the greenway itself crossed over, is so long yeah. that if there were only the one central channel down there that came in from the north side there over to our right... I don't think it would have been that broad if the left side maybe it, is just yeah. flooded now, but wasn't before. Maybe it was just like a like a like a little sort of shallow creek or something like that, something that wasn't that thick an obstacle to everybody, or Possibly. something even beautiful and ornamental. But still, it does part look like there's the, some you know, docks down there, though. Right. Oh, down on the left. Yeah, the maybe. the one the 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 sort of half Romanesque vault that. That didn't mm -hmm. quite get the dome right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's a long sort of colonnade after that. That definitely looks like a dock. But right, um, right, yeah, like maybe what... it's for maybe it's for more shallow ships or something like that. I don't know. I'm not sure. It looks like there's stairs going down off it. I don't think that was a. Yeah. I think it only looks like maybe... a dock because it's flooded now. Maybe that part wasn't connected to the river. Maybe it was just allowed to be full of water, either by locks or a dam or something like that, for ships to just steer into to stay. Possibly. Possibly. Like a, like a wharf. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's where the, you know, the, the vacationers' speedboats were. <laughs> I'm looking at the major towers. We've got yeah. this one really tall one straight, well, straight to the like northwest uh-huh. over there on that edge of the city. Mm-hmm. And then, so on the north bank, right, there's one at the beginning mm-hmm. and the end of the city. Yeah. And then on the south bank, there's one, I guess that's kind of at the end of the city. Maybe yeah. there's one on the other side. Just trying yeah, I can to see. see a lot better in the daytime. What we thought was a curved tower was actually those racing fins again. Yes, I think so. Sorry, coming over here to see if we, what we can see over here. Uh, no, that's the pepper pot, but I don't see. Ah, okay. All right. I think I understand. So there isn't a leading tower on the you know, on the upstream side of the South Bank. You know why, I think? Because I think why? we're on it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. We're on one of the tallest things around here. I think we're on it. I think that this central tower, because again, I, I don't think there was a, the, the the main river clearly flowed to the north of here. Yeah. Um. So could this tower, Nancy, have been some kind of warehouse? It feels warehouse-ish. That seems to me a very plausible sort of theory. Yeah, it could. Um, um, also, with a city this big, you definitely want some sort of signal between this part and the other part of the city that's across the water. Right. And if we look... Can we see how yeah, we can? If we look out here... Oh, look at all those flooded lands to <sighs> the east here. A delta. Yeah, it is like a delta. Hang on a second. I want to go around the other side. Oops, but not falling down if possible. This is becoming like one of those obstacle courses I'm bad at. Um, I'll come around the other Low side. Low parkour. I, yeah, I'm so bad at that. Um, like that tower in Rohan, I can never climb for part of the oh, God, people yeah, rep yeah. quests. Um, Flets, Flets and Lothlorien. Yes, Nimbarth. Okay, Nimbarth. That's what I was looking. The other, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. That's what I wanted to see right here. Okay, right. So that is the when you were talking about signals. Um, what we were looking at, I'm wondering if it was like a lighthouse or something. I wonder mm-hmm. if instead it's intended to be a series of signals that you could pass down from upstream, you know, they could commute where they could communicate up and down the river. Um, yeah, it would make sense. 
uh, because that, I mean, when you look at like that one up there and then the one down in the south of the city, you know, um, there would be, there would be a continuous line of sight there. Just like Napoleon's telegraph towers, Ron. Exactly. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's Nimbarth, right? Yes, that we're looking at it is Nimbarth. Um, and there's the sort of larger city around that that we were looking at over there. Um, and wondering when we were over there what its relationship with Tharbad was. Um, mm -hmm. But it does make a certain amount of sense, especially if, remember, there were some settlements and things to the north and I'm looking at the map now, to the north and east of Nimbarth, up towards into the Trollshaws, right? Um, mm -hmm. Things that landed, like, you know, goods that landed at Tharbad could be taken up the greenway, but, you know, you then have to go all the way around instead of just going to Nimbarth and then going straight overland that way. Um, sure. This is clearly the landing spot for things headed up northwest, you know, up the greenway into Arnor, but um, not headed the other direction. So, anyway. Mm -hmm. All right. We are... We've had a nice thorough ramble here around the middle oh, of Tharbad. Um, this is good. I think next time we should head on down into Swanfleet. We're, of course, beginning to approach the moment when we will be able to complete our exploration of Eregion, the parts that we skipped, the narrative-related bits that we skipped were in the narrative that uh, um, uh, that was about that. But, of course, we want to wait till after the wolf fight and probably wait until after we get through the, the gates of Moria there before we go and finish Eregion and then start off into Moria. So Nice. In the meantime, while we're getting through that chunk of narrative before we end up in the long dark of Moria, um, we'll see if we can explore Swanfleet here, and then we will have completed the new area. Very nice. Yeah, so mate, we'll start down, head down towards Mossward next time. Mossward. Where I think we may be able to get a another milestone. All right. Yep. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. This has been fun exploring Tharbot at last. Um, but um, I will uh, I will be excited to continue on down. I've seen a little bit of Swanfleet, but I'll be excited to explore it around a little bit more. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye everyone.